Hi, and welcome to this latest episode from 1914to1918war.com. In this episode, I'll be looking at some upcoming anniversaries if I get time, and I'll be uh, starting a doubleheader uh, episode looking at the Cuxhaven raid uh, on the Zeppelin sheds uh, that took place on Christmas Day 1914. This attempt to neutralise the threat from the German Zeppelin fleet represents an important step in the development of air power and was fraught with difficulties. It makes you wonder why they've not made it into a film. Throughout the uh, podcast, I'll use my attempt at the German pronunciation of Cuxhaven, but if you want to look it up online, an anglicised version would be Cuxhaven. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. It would be genuinely appreciated. Right, let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for files is at stake. Before we get on to the uh, main event for the week, uh, just let's have a quick look at some of the anniversaries that are coming up over the uh, next few days. Starting during 1914, Uh, German troops were entering the port of Ostend on the 15th of October and the very first troops uh, from the New Zealand Expeditionary Force were departing from Wellington to head to Europe to support the Empire. And then in 1915, on the 15th and 16th uh, of October, Britain and France declared uh, war on Bulgaria, closely followed by Italy and Russia also declaring war on Bulgaria on the 19th of October 1915. Jumping ahead to 1916 now, uh, on the 18th of October, Haig wrote to the King with a general update on the progress in the Somme, uh, telling him that the weather had deteriorated and that infantry operations were getting difficult. And on the 19th, the British Reserve Army attack at the Somme was cancelled due to poor weather. Then in 1917, uh, we've got October the 18th, British merchant ship Amsterdamer, weighing in at 1,232 tonnes, was torpedoed by a German submarine off the Yorkshire coast. And on the ninth, uh, that was on the 18th of October. On the 19th of October 1917, 11 Zeppelins raided northern, northern England, but were struck by strong gales and scattered, uh, one disappearing without a trace. One was crashed, one was shot down, one was captured. Not a great raid there from the Germans. Then in 1918, uh, General Pershing uh, visited the 3rd Division on the 15th of October, observing that they are disorganised and apparently disheartened. And on October the 16th, sticking with the Americans, the Americans attacked along the River Meuse. A brigade commanded by Douglas MacArthur took the Côte de Châtillon, uh, and resisted attempts to dislodge them afterwards. Uh, that's, this established MacArthur's reputation as a fighting commander, which he was to carry into the Second World War. And the last anniversary for this week, on October the 17th, 1918, British troops entered the city of Lille, taking the city without any fighting. Now, uh, let's get on with the main feature for this week. The Cuxhaven Raid. Winston Churchill, the first sea lord, was in two minds over the value of airships. When he considered a British airship, crewed by sailors from the Royal Navy, he considered airships to be a stupid waste of money, 
and as such he discouraged the Royal Navy from investing its budget in this new form of weapon, as he was to write later. An enormous bladder of combustible and explosive gas would prove to be easily destructible. As such he said that, I therefore did everything in my power in the years before the war to restrict expenditure upon airships and to concentrate our narrow and stinted resources upon aeroplanes. So Churchill considered airships a stupid waste of money that would distract from the core business of building up the size of the fleet. Unless the airships were being built and flown by the Germans, now Churchill could see the menace that the German Zeppelin fleet posed to the British Isles. In the years prior to the war, invasion literature had been incredibly popular. Stories such as the Riddle of the Sands and the War in the Air helped to spread the notion that an invasion of Britain might be a possibility and led to a number of scares in 1912 and 1913, where eyewitnesses reported airships engaging on nocturnal missions of frightening import, with sightings ranging from London to Liverpool and Cardiff. In 1912, Churchill himself warned the Committee on Imperial Defence that our dockyards, machine shops, magazines and ships lying in basins are absolutely defenceless against this form of attack. In line with the policy, the British didn't spend money on a significant airship fleet, but did invest in extending the Navy's capability to transport seaplanes on board ships. Accordingly, an old light cruiser, HMS Hermes, was converted to carry two seaplanes in 1913. Early in the war, the Germans made use of their Zeppelins to bomb Belgian targets as a part of their invasion, the use of Zeppelins to shock the Belgian defenders, hastening their surrender, amplified the perceived efficiency of the Zeppelin fleet. At the beginning of the war, Churchill, after a request from Lord Kitchener, had taken the responsibility for the air defence of Britain into the Royal Navy's remit, and now found himself with the responsibility to protect the homeland from this new threat, but with no means to actually do it. The aircraft available at the beginning of the war were simply too underpowered to be able to climb to the operating heights enjoyed by the Zeppelins, and even if they managed to meet the airships in combat, they lacked the weapons to destroy them. Churchill had anticipated that aircraft armed with incendiary bullets would find Zeppelins easy prey, but now reality hit home hard, and if these two factors were not enough, the Zeppelins tended to operate at night at a time when heavier-than-air aircraft flew during the day. However, Churchill understood that the airships were extremely vulnerable on the ground when housed in their enormous hangars or when being taxied in and out of their bases. Here the opportunity for an attack presented itself, and it was possible that this could neutralise the Zeppelin threat, at least for a while, as the enormous cost and construction time might make it difficult for the Germans to replace them quickly. Whilst the idea of a ground attack had its advantages, problems remained. Heavier-than-air aircraft lacks the range of airships and certainly lacks the capability to fly as far as the Zeppelin sheds at Cologne and Dusseldorf. Given this limitation, any attacking aircraft needed to start from as near the enemy's line as possible. As early as 12th of September 1914, Churchill expressed a desire that the largest possible force of naval aeroplanes should be positioned around Calais and Dunkirk, where it would be closer to the German forces. Despite the difficulties of distance, a series of attempts were made to destroy German airships on the ground in late 1914. 
On the 22nd of September 1914, four aircraft from the Royal Naval Air Service flew from Antwerp in an attempt to attack the Zeppelin sheds at Dusseldorf and Cologne. But the airmen struggled to find the sheds in heavy mist, with only Lieutenant Charles Collett making it to the target. Dropping three bombs, one of which failed to explode, he caused no damage. Given the size of the shed, I think that gives you an idea about how difficult aerial bombing was. On the 8th of October, the British achieved a rare success when Flight Lieutenant Reginald Matrix of the Royal Naval Air Service flew from Antwerp in his Sopwith tabloid and bombed a Zeppelin shed in Dusseldorf. Zeppelin Z-11, which had previously bombed Antwerp and Ostend during the opening two months of the war, was destroyed inside the shed. On the 21st of November, three RNAS Avro 504 aircraft took off from Belfort in France to attempt an attack on the Zeppelin factories at Friedrichshaven. And despite excited reports in the press, nothing of note was achieved with the loss of one aircraft. The crew were captured when they were shot down over German territory. One way to improve the chances of a successful attack was to try and reduce the range that the aircraft were required to fly on their approach. Here the Navy planned to use a relatively new weapon. In 1914, aircraft carriers such as we know them did not exist. Whilst aircraft had been flown from fixed platforms perched on top of battleships, no aeroplane had ever been landed onto a ship. Instead, early air power was based around seaplanes, which could launch and land on the ocean. A plan began to form for long-distance raids, where the attacking seaplanes would be carried within range on board ships, and then lowered over the side, from where they would take off, conduct their mission, and then return to the waiting ships for recovery or rescue. After the early experiments with HMS Hermes, the first ships to be converted for seaplane use were cross-channel passenger steamers. The Empress, Campania and Engadine were altered to carry three aircraft each. Cranes were installed to lower the aircraft gently over the side and retrieve them from the water after their missions. Steel hangars were built on the ship's decks to protect the wood and fabric aircraft from the kind of weather experienced in the North Atlantic. On board these new carriers were an assortment of biplanes, Type 74s, folders and Type 135s built by the Short Brothers Engineering Works and carrying a pilot and an observer. With a top speed below 80 miles an hour and a range between 300 and 400 miles, these single-engine planes were equipped with floats and folding wings to allow them to be stowed safely on board. Each plane would carry three 19-pound bombs which were released from the cockpit by pulling a wire. The British believed that any one of these bombs exploding anywhere near the huge amount of hydrogen contained within a Zeppelin would rapidly cause an inferno and the entire airship to explode. The new aircraft carriers were based out of Harwich Naval Base and were available for service by the end of August 1914. On the 22nd of October, Commodore Reginald Tewitt, one of two Commodores in charge of the Harwich Naval Forces, Roger Keyes being the other, was called to the Admiralty to discuss plans for a seaborne raid. The plan, originally devised by Keyes, was for six aircraft to be launched from the Engadine and the Riviera. A force of light cruisers and destroyers would accompany the carriers to provide protection as they forayed into the Heligoland Bight in North Germany and launched their aircraft. 
The force would then loiter in the area as the attack on the Cuxhaven Zeppelin sheds took place, waiting for the aeroplanes to return and land before being retrieved back onto the carrier ships. The raid was planned for the 25th of October 1914. Given the aircraft needed to take off and land on the ocean and were not particularly robust, calm seas were essential. The raiding ships sailed from Harwich on October the 24th, passing through some heavy rain as they navigated across the North Sea during the night. In the early morning light on the 25th of October, the aircraft were lowered over the side of the carrier ships and prepared for flight. Heavy rain prevented four of the aircraft from taking off. Then, of the two that did get into the air, one was forced to turn back with engine troubles after only 12 miles. The final aircraft struggled on for 20 miles before turning back as the weather made navigation nigh on impossible. The raid had been a resounding failure. Despite this setback, a further attempt was planned for the 23rd of November and the plan was tweaked slightly to include a foray by the Grand Fleet out into the North Sea in support of the operation. Writing to his wife, Commodore Turret said, We're going to try again and I can't help thinking we shall succeed this time. He was wrong. This time the raid was cancelled from above by the Admiralty. Depending on whose account you read, the reasons for cancellation vary. It was either on account of impending bad weather, or as Jellicoe said, the enemy had a force present in the bight which would be too strong for our detached vessels. Following the German Navy's successful bombardment of Scarborough, Hull and Whitby, Keyes and Tyrrett were authorised to execute their plan once again. On the 23rd of December, the weather forecast looked good for an attempt on Christmas Day. This time, three carriers, the Engadine, the Riviera and the Empress, were to take part, supported by three light cruisers and eight destroyers out of Harwich. In addition to the surface fleet, Commodore Keyes added 11 submarines, deploying them into three sections, some around the aircraft launch area, others where the German high seas fleet might emerge to attack the raiding force, and finally some at the planned aircraft recovery area. To avoid confusion amongst the British seaplanes, the submarines were painted with a recognition signal comprising of a white and red checker pattern on their conning towers which would hopefully be visible from the air. The plan required the carriers to sail to within 15 miles of Heligoland, launch their aircraft and then retreat to the recovery position to the north of Norderney on the northern German coast. The seaplanes were to fly directly to the Zeppelin base at Cuxhaven and then on their return leg fly over two German harbours around Cuxhaven and Wilhelmshaven, hopefully gathering valuable intelligence about the disposition of the German fleet on their way. As during the 23rd of November plan, Jellicoe and the Grand Fleet were to sail out into the North Sea in support. And on that cliffhanger, we'll leave the Cuxhaven raid. Uh, if you listen in next week, I should have the next bit ready. Um, thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please leave a review if you have and uh, look forward to uh, joining you next week. Thanks a lot. Bye.